welcome to episode 105 of The Golfing Mind, the, the podcast which looks at the game of golf in all its wonder and in general terms, and where we can, we try and concentrate on the mental game. But the past 100 uh, podcasts have looked in great depth at the mental game, so now we're looking much more at the game of golf in its very wide varieties. I'm very pleased to be able to introduce two new co-hosts for the last couple of podcasts We've had Mike Kershaw, and I'm delighted to introduce uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, Neil Falconer. And I've played golf with Neil for nearly 40 years. Uh, he learned his golf at North Berwick in Scotland, which, if you remember, is a golf course that Mike Kershaw said, if he could only play one course the rest of his life, that would be it. And I have to agree with him. Uh, when Neil lived as a child in uh, North Berwick, he played the famous kids course up to a dozen times in a day. So that must be a record. In spite of that, his short game remains as disappointing as it has always been. He played golf for the University of London with Mike Kershaw and continues to play alumni golf, usually in foursomes with some unfortunate partner. Link's golf remains his joy and he loves hacking around the course, whether it's in Kent, East Lothian, Fife or elsewhere where he can get on. Currently off 5.3, allegedly, he is easy meat for anyone with a real golf handicap. Also a keen amateur historian of the game, Neil, welcome to The Golfing Mind. Well, Robin, how nice to be here. Um, I'm slightly surprised you didn't ask me to join you in one of the 104 episodes about the mental side of golf, but, but there we are. Let's see if we can make up for it. Well, I'm, I'm, we'll see what we can do. And also, I'm very, very pleased to reintroduce Matt Barr. For those of you that listen to past podcasts, Matt is our resident expert. He is the, um, well, when it comes to picking people who won't win a major, he can generally get that name spot on every time. Uh, he prides himself on being an average golfer for over 50 years. Uh, short of a few junior club championships and a few plates he won at other clubs, he claims. He's a pretty sort of regular guy, and he always tells his caddies on the first tee that he's a big tipper. Uh, he tips like a plus five, but he plays like a, an eight or nine handicapper. Um, his, uh, he's a big chap. He played American football through college, and uh, he played at a Division One school. And at the start of his career, he claims he was an ordinary golfer. I've played golf with him many times, and he's anything but. Uh, he still claims that the bangs on the head contributed to his love of chasing a little white ball around courses around the world over many decades. Matt, welcome to the, the Golfing Mind. Well, Robin, it's great to be back. Uh, certainly one of the highlights of my year last year was sharing some some of my insights, which were incredibly astute, uh, clearly. <laughs> and uh, thanks for the compliment. And if I'm an ordinary golfer and I've put the boots to you several times, what does that make you? Uh, that makes me an extraordinarily willing subject of pain and suffering. Uh, I haven't beaten you, I think, in the last 10 years. So, <laughs> Anyway, this week I thought we'd look at the, the the name of this podcast. The title is In Search of Perfection. And the idea I had was that are we becoming overly reliant on technology? Uh, many years ago I went, when I was spending winters in Florida, I went to the PGO Merchandise Show and I met the, I won't mention the, which club it was, but it was a major club manufacturer and I asked him, why do they bring out a brand new driver every year? And he said, because he knows globally there's 300,000 people around the planet who will probably buy it. Uh, but if the technology is going to be so beneficial to the game, why aren't we getting better? 
Neil, you got any thoughts on the influence of technology on your decision making? Well, I've, increasingly over the last five years, I've found that there are too many courses that are just far too short for me. Uh, <laughs> really, as a consequence of, of just hitting it too, too, too long and straight with um, with the the new driver that comes out. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, a, clearly a big problem for me. What about the average golfer? Do you think? Do you think we're buying it? I mean, do, 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 but Matt, I remember playing golf with you once in Florida, and you proudly picked up this golf driver <laughs> that you told me you'd spent four hundred dollars on a shaft called the bazooka, I think it was, and you said it's the first ever golf shaft that you can't hook the ball. You said to me, "Rab, you can't hook the ball." You then teed it up and hit one of the most classic duck hooks I've ever seen. What's your take on technology? Because I know you're what I would call an early adopter. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, um, certainly, I've uh, I've I've uh, pursued a lot of technology over the years to try to get the edge. I can't tell you for sure that there there are certainly a lot of bad drivers out there because I've been through all of them and none of them seem to have worked, including that four hundred dollar shaft. But um, you know, ultimately. I do think there's an advantage in it. The, the technology today is is so advanced across all the major manufacturers that the difference from a technological standpoint is infinitesimal. But I think um, as, as you and Mike Kershaw spoke about with putting, it's really about confidence, right? So if you find that club that fits your eye, you hit a few good ones, being able to make a free swing and uh, you know having that confidence on the tee is, is is incredible throughout throughout the bag for that matter. So I think that's why people are forever searching for that that confidence and that free swing. Yeah, I know. I agree with you, Neil. I, I think the curious thing about the marketing of drivers is that all of the adverts are done with the pros, and I don't think any of us is <laughs> in 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 any in any place to hit a golf club that a pro hits. My limited experience of that is some years ago where when a chum of mine produced Ian Woosnam's driver. And this had an extraordinarily stiff shaft and none of us were able to get the ball off the ground. So Woosnam or whoever else it may be might be marketing golf clubs and many people might be impressed. But the golf club he's marketing isn't the golf club any of us would be playing. I I I see you, Robin, as a as a as a potential marketer of golf clubs. Um, the before and after of you, I think, would be pretty significant if, at some point, you were able to hit something straight. Well, if any of the manufacturers are listening, uh, I'll be open to discussions if they wish to t pursue that. But I know, I know, Matt. When we spoke recently. You're now looking to buy a set of Hickory golf clubs. Mm. Yeah, I was out of Pebble Beach. Was fortunate to be out there for a few days last October and um, played several rounds. And my caddy was part of uh, the Hickory Golf uh, Organization, and there are various chapters around the country. And we got to talking about um, <clears throat> the uh, organization. And on my last round, uh, just sort of for kicks, I said, "Let's leave my bag in the car, and you bring your set of hickories." And had an absolute ball. Um, 
Well, no, but, it was, but, that, but what's amazing is that Bobby Jones shot 66 at Sunningdale with Hickory Shafts, you know, and I, so I just wonder if this pursuit of distance is dumbing the game down. Because I think you look, who was that player, um, DeChambeau, that created this, what was it called, gouge and slasher? There was this way of just overpowering it off the tee. And uh, even McElroy was trying to catch up with them. And I don't know if this pursuit of distance has got into the heads of the average golfer. Because the number of guys I know who go under the range and they don't hit their irons, they just get their driver out and try and hit it as far as possible. It's interesting um, <clears throat> with regard to uh, scoring with the hickory shafted clubs. I was, I think I played five rounds in three days and um, my worst round was with the hickories, but it was only by three shots. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty surprised by that. Um, and, and, the, and the feel you get playing a, a softball and a persimmon head brought back a lot of memories. Neil, do you play, do you play hickory? Well, a lot of uh, Matt. Matt is one of a number of chums of mine who have converted to hickories of late. Um, I haven't done it myself. I think I my 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 swing is a little bit too twitchy for hickories, probably, but might well assist my tempo if I did give it a go. Mm-hmm. Um, I played against people with hickories, and 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 as Matt as Matt suggests alludes to, I. You can you can have a perfectly good game of um, of similar handicaps, and it um, it's 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 I mean, it's good fun. Yeah, but I mean it's the big the other thing I've been interested to look at is this pursuit of distance. They're now talking about the compression of the golf ball. Do you think the golf ball compression should be lowered for the pros, or to, do you think the courses should be made narrower? Or how do we make them? You know, they used to talk about tiger proofing a golf course. How does how do you how do you pro proof a golf course, Matt? Any thoughts? I'm not a fan of changing the compression of the balls. I think that um, I think it adds too many different variables to the to the equation. If you look across the the board at the history of golf and, and those who've excelled in other ways, obviously there are various compressions up and down the line, but they're done you know for the most part uh, within distinguishable chunks of time. And I know everyone likes to you know, to compare. You know the best the best golfer of all time was it you know Bobby Jones was it Hogan was it Tiger was it Jack I'll play with different compression balls for the most part, um, but to your earlier point in terms of the, the you know the length of the golf course I mean Tiger's just announced that he's building a course out in Utah that's going to be eight thousand yards uh, with a seven hundred yard par five. Um, well, that's now, amazing because finally, finally, Neil, you can find a golf course that can, <laughs> at last, at last, that, that can handle your <laughs> and if you and if you and if you play them with hickory clubs, that might make it fair for everyone else. Neil, you're going to say something, Neil? Well, uh, it might not be in the pro game, but you did have Mike Kershaw on last week, and he was talking about his win in the East Lancashire Under 14s Long Driving Championship. Which, I, 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 Never defended. Well, well, well. Can I can I just make a couple of points? The first point is that that was in 1976, and he was born in 1961. So if you do the math, he wasn't under 14 that year. Just saying. 
And the other point was that it was a 200 compression compression Molitor. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the Molitor? I do remember the Molitor well. And we all carried one in tournaments where they had the log driving hole. We'd pull it out <laughs> and go, stand by, fire on the hole. And uh, we'd all try and hit the, the jabbers out of it. I, uh, I, I, my, here's a curious thing. The number of times I'm playing, I get invited to a golf day to walk around and I see 24 handicappers and they're all playing the best, most expensive golf ball. I played the competition once in Scotland, the Carnegie Shield at Donich. And the guy I played with was plus one. He was a local carpenter and he played a, a ball called made by Dunlop, which was like a pool ball. It was like you dropped it in concrete. It didn't really bounce. And he was a plus one golfer. So I wonder if this pursuit of the best ball, the latest club, the latest shaft, the latest grip is part of a, a big marketing money trap by the manufacturers. I mean, quick question, Neil, do you have a golf ball you play with exclusively? And the same question to Matt afterwards. Neil. Well, I... I I, I suppose I do play the same brand of ball. I, I've no idea whether it's the best ball for my game. I, I'm pretty sure it can't be because most of the pros play it. Um, so there must be something that suits me better. But I suppose the marketers have done their best to convince me that that's the that's 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 the ball. I suppose the the the, the point just moving on from what to do with golf courses is that. Um, I, I, I've always thought the most interesting golf holes you see are either the short par fours or often the you know, the shorter par threes. And I'm not sure if those necessarily are holes that are you know play any easier on the stroke index uh, for the pros than than any other. You know that what, what what's that hole they play at Riviera number ten or something, which is. Uh, 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 300 yards and you know they're always trying to hit the green and they're missing the green and they're getting fives and sixes and so forth that's quite I enjoy I much prefer watching that than I do the 460 yard par four where you're going to muscle it on the on the green um, and you know is it is it is it any more difficult any more straightforward you know is it testing different things to simply length I think probably it is Matt yeah, um, in terms of balls, I uh, I play a, a particular brand. I call, I call it the yard ball because I live on a golf course that's about 200 yards. My house is about 200 yards on the right-hand side. And uh, I collect at least, uh, you know, a dozen balls a week or so over there. Uh, and a couple in the pool from time to time. Now, I've, uh, I've actually I've gone to a harder ball in the last couple of years. Um, and... You know, for years, I probably, like Neil, was playing the same ball, um, a softer ball that a lot of the pros use. Um, my son's a good player, so they always seem to be around the house, and I just will grab a sleeve. But I consciously made the move to go to a, a, soft, a harder ball uh, over the over the last couple of years. And, you know, it's, it's given me the distance. And, and particularly, I don't need as much spin as I did once because, you know, my you know, I'm, I'm not getting the ball, and this is a commentary on my game, past the hole in a lot of times in order to be able to spit it back towards the hole. I need the ball to roll towards the hole. I can't tell you how few balls I'm, I actually get to the hole. I'm not familiar with that myself, but I appreciate <laughs> it must be very testing. Um, 
Um, on the length of the uh, on the length of the courses is interesting. Uh, you know, when you when you look, you, you speak of Riviera number ten and how it's evolved, and then historically, no one went for that green. No pros went for that green. It was a uh, it was a two shotter. They hit an iron or something down there, and then try to get it up and in. But it you know it's very defensible, and there are a ton of courses and holes out there that the PGA plays. I mean, a good example I think is is uh, is is the uh, is Marion where uh, Justin Rose won. You know, they thought that the guys were going to absolutely destroy that golf course, and it did rain early in the week, so they thought it was going to be soft and and um, and short. Um, I mean, USGA had a lot to do with zipping it up clearly, but it was it was well defended, and, and the numbers were not nearly as low as I think people anticipated because of the finesse required. Well, I, I'm sure I've, I've played Marion and the closing five holes are just unbelievably penal. And I think the sign of great golf courses is that they're going to be penal. I think when it comes back to technology, I think the pros, you know, are playing equipment that is way beyond our need, the spec they play. Uh, but I was curious to ask both of you, because I'm going to tell you my answer before I, you get to answer, is that what technological improvement do you feel you've benefited from? And personally, for myself, I think graphite shafts have made a big difference to my game. And I also, this isn't technology, but I have thicker grips, obviously, because I get big hands, but I have a slightly thicker grip. And that's the main thing. I think the more forgiving face, cavity back. You know, the other day, my friend's son, uh, Mike Kershaw's son, wanted one iron, and I had a one iron in my basement, and it was a TP9 Mizuno. It looked like a butter knife. And I remember I hit that club 200 times, and on only one occasion, my hands didn't hurt afterwards. I never, ever got it close to the sweet spot. But then I had a ping one iron, and it made a huge difference. So I can't say technology doesn't make a difference. Of course, it makes a colossal difference. And I think what you referred to earlier, Matt, about it gives you confidence. Confidence is king. Is king, I think, when it comes to playing at our best. But what technology have you adopted that you helps helped you, Matt? As I got older, hybrid technology has been hands down the, uh, you know, the ace in the bag for me. When I turned 50, I dumped my three iron. When I turned 55, I dumped my four iron and my five irons. Very nervous right now because I'm 58. <laughs> um, but I can assure you the five is good to go and uh, not ready to go to too many hybrids in the bag. It's a little nerve wracking. Nope. Uh I, I think the two things that have been, benefited me, uh, one of which has been around for 100 years since Gene Saracen was finally understanding what the bounce at the bottom of a wedge was all about. And I suppose if you play relatively hard golf courses, that's, that's, um, that's, that's certainly it's been significant for me. Um, the, the 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 technology I'd really like to embrace is the bleeper three though, which is the golf ball that bleeps in the rough, so you can find it. <laughs> Does that really exist? <laughs> is there such a thing? Well, hey, sure. I mean, like it would it would sell well. Well, it? That, that that's like the old joke. He likes looking for their ball in the rough. Well, that that's like the old joke of the guys in the clubhouse, and he says to his friend. Have you seen this? And he pulls out a ball and he goes, what is it? He goes, well, it's amazing. It beeps. And then it sends out a signal. 
and then it vibrates in a loud noise and it glows. And it's the first golf ball in the world. You, It's impossible to lose. And the guy said, where, where did you get it? He goes, I found it in the rough at the 14th. <laughs> As an aside, one piece of advice I give is, is, is if, you were, if you ever personalize your balls and the product your golf club probably offers you a personalization service, you know, uh, uh, in December for... Uh, Christmas presents. Um, d don't put don't put your name on the ball, because you find the next year that people come into the clubhouse and simply say, "Hey, we're a long way left on seven, or a long way right on four. <laughs> oh, and how often do you guys change your your golf clubs? Uh, I mean, not often. Probably between five and ten years, maybe on average, the last thirty, forty years, something like that. Right. Uh, about the same. My my last set, um, my son won a a, uh, a tournament, and the host was a PGA player, and he had a obviously a club deal, and one of the gifts was a new set of of clubs. At the time, my son was playing uh, a different brand and had a little deal with them, so couldn't couldn't accept them, but. He was kind enough to ask if uh, if if I could have him. So we jumped back in the car after the round and ready, congratulated him on the win. And he was kind of puffed up and said with a bit of bravado, oh, well, Dad, what do you think of the free clubs I just won you? <laughs> and I went back quickly and said, well, Charlie, given the many years of instruction, travel, uh, clubs and other things. I suspect that that was about a thirty thousand dollars set of clubs I just. Received. <laughs> uh, I must say it's uh, it's a uh, great having you guys. Uh, great having the podcast. We're going to wrap it up shortly, but it's uh, funny because recent last two or three podcasts, Mike Kershaw, who can't join us this week or next week, uh, was going on to me about you know he played Augusta and it stuck in my throat. He just always drops it in there. What do you? I mean, has he ever done that to you guys? I think we'll go on to talk about Mike Kershaw when we talk about rules infringements. Okay. But, Neil, I know that you've played Augusta, haven't you? <laughs> I I have played Augusta. I've had the uh, the great honour of playing there, and it's um, that uh, demonstrates, as, as Matt was saying about um, Merrion, that it doesn't need to be super, super long in order to be very, very difficult. And And... That sounds an odd thing to say, perhaps, because you hear every year that they extend the course by another hundred yards or so. But you can you can make that course a lot more difficult by just shaving greens even more than they do, or making the runoff areas more severe. And it is extremely well it is extremely well protected through its features. And Matt, absolutely, I, I found it to be the same. Um, particularly when the wind's blowing. Um, the, it was just spectacular experiences playing there. Um, you don't really understand the topography of it until you get there and understand, you know, how many hills are there, how many shots you got to be able to navigate uh, those swirling winds and the greens, to your point. Um, it's just, there are only so many places you can land it on the greens to hold it and then li literally have a legitimate putt. Um, do they you know, so in your case in your so Robin well, give us your your thoughts on on, uh, on Augusta <laughs> it looks very good on the television <laughs> as, <close laughs> as I can 
Say, unless I can get a caddy schmock, I guess there's no chance of me walking its hallowed turf. Uh, the one thing I do remember when I was a boy watching the uh, Masters from Augusta was the commentator was Henry Longhurst and then Peter Alice. And without fail, every year, in their quite dulcet tones, one would say, I don't think the viewers at home have any idea quite how fast these greens are. Were the greens spectacularly fast when you played them or no faster than a championship course? Well, I, I, I think I expect the same with Matt, but when 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 I played them, they would have been significantly slower than during championship time because otherwise they'd be pretty unplayable, I suspect. You know, getting regular golfers round there with whatever they go to, 13, 14 on the stimp is insane. It's not straightforward. Yeah. Right, we're about to wrap it up. Before we do, Matt, having with having you with us is a great treat because this weekend is the TPC Championship. And as one of the most amazing tipsters I know, I'm just curious who you're going to put your money on, which horse. I mean, I, uh, I've i got my thoughts on the TPC. And I this might sound very controversial. I have got a funny feeling Cameron Smith is going to... He's not playing, is he? Uh, no. He's going to be missed from the field. And I think... Mike Kershaw is a big fan of John Ram at the moment, um, but I just this is one I can't really call. There's no one who's really stand out. I think Scheffler's in great form, Spieth's in great form, Ram's in great form, Justin Thomas. I mean, they're going to be featured in any competition where it's a big event. But I'd like to see um, I'd like to see Zalatoris do it. Yeah, I think you're right, Robin. I mean. Um... You know, we talked about technology and distance and uh, how it's affected the game. But, uh, you know, if you look at the finish of uh, of Arnold's tournament this, this last week, you know, obviously unbelievable play. And um, just Kitty Yama, how he was able to bounce back from hitting two balls out of bounds on Saturday, well, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. Just the fortitude that he showed was spectacular. But if you look at any of the top ten finishers of that that uh, tournament, you can't, you know, you you, you can't deny that they're going to be right there on Sunday. Cool, Hovland. I think Hovland might be. Uh, He's my man this so. year. He's my. If he doesn't win a major this year, I'm changing my name. So that's there. You go. It's out there. Can, can we pick it? Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, okay. If you, if you take me to Augusta, you can pick me any. You can come in with Betsy. Um, well, with that in mind, I'm going to wrap this up. So I'd like to thank you guys. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about um, another aspect of the game, which I think will be interesting, which is on rules or rules we'd like to see changed. But uh, until then, may I wish you all the very best. And my thought for this week is, you know, don't over-invest in technology if your game has gone off the boil. Invest in some lessons and some practice. I think you might find the solution there. Uh, build back, build your confidence back up and don't imagine there's a magic solution in the, in the world of technology because it's probably more of a placebo than anything. So until we meet again, play good golf and have a wonderful week. <laughs>